Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with one of her dear friends and lifelong activist Kathy Martinez. Kathy Martinez is an internationally recognized disability rights leader and offers a compelling perspective on many disability issues as someone who was born blind. She joined disability rights advocates as president and CEO in March 2021 after having spent six years as SVP, head of disability and accessibility strategy for Wells Fargo. Previously, she served as assistant secretary of the Office of Disability Employment Policy at the U.S. Department of Labor. Judy and Kathy talk about Kathy's adventure-filled childhood, her introduction to disability activism in the 70s, her career in activism that stemmed from that, and the importance of weaving accessibility into everything you do instead of it being an afterthought. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guest today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, I'm really very happy that we're going to be talking with Kathy Martinez. Kathy and I go back, oh, probably more years than we want to say. But the reason I wanted to ask her to be on this program is because you'll see she has done great work in her life and continues to do so. And so I want us to learn from her about who she is, what she's been doing, and what she sees as some of the areas that we need to continue to work in. Kathy, when did we first meet? <laughs> Do you remember? We met in October of 1979. 19, and what was circumstances that we met? We met when we were organizing a rally. We met at the Organization for the Rights of Disabled People in Berkeley, and there was a, a rally to support disability rights. It was a rally led by Kitty Cohn. She was the organizer. We had lots of support from uh, the unions, Glide Memorial Church, different social justice organizations from the African-American, Latino, and LGBTQ communities. It was like three months after I got to the Bay Area, officially. Where are you from, Kathy? Uh, I'm from Southern California. My family is originally from Northern New Mexico. Let's talk a little bit more about your background. So you come from uh, New Mexico. How big is your family? So I come from a pretty large Latino family by these standards. I'm, I'm one of six kids. I also have a blind sister, and we happen to be the two middle children of six. Both of my parents come from large families, so we were lucky to have cousins on both sides that were very close to us and played a big role in, in me growing up, as well as did my siblings. Yeah, so maybe we could talk about that a little. What year were you born? I was born in 1958. So the reason I asked that question is I was born in 1947. And it's important to realize when some of the major laws came into being. So Kathy was born in 1958, started going to school in 1962 or 1963. Section 504 came into being in 1973. 
and the IDEA um, not until 1975. So Kathy, what was it like for your family, your mom, your dad, um, as you were growing up and as you and your sister were identified as being blind? Did they have any experience um, in the area of blindness or disability in general? So my parents came from a relatively undeveloped part of the country at the time. They moved to California before I was born. We would travel back to New Mexico every summer, and I would stay for about three months out of every year, two to three months, uh, up until I was about 14 or 15. And, and I loved staying there because, um, well, first of all, I got a lot of attention because there were so many relatives that, you know, if somebody got sick of me, they could just pass me on to the next guy next house and the other thing for me was I loved horses I still do and I was I could ride I could I learned how to like you know pitch hay I, I just was very in touch with with what was happening in the summer on on a farm in New Mexico so I loved staying when the rest of my family would, would go back would drive back home I would stay and then and then my grandmother would or somebody I guess paid for a flight back I think my parents did their best to treat Peggy and I um, like they treated their other kids. However, we were blind and there were certain things they had to do. And when they, you know, when I was born, they didn't really realize I was blind until I was almost, uh, you know, eight months or nine months old. They didn't have a lot of experience with doctors or with the medical industrial complex. And so, you know, of course, they were encouraged at the time to try to find a cure. We spent a few years doing that, and they realized, you know, that, that I would be blind. And then, of course, when Peggy was born two years later, um, she would be blind as well. So fortunately for us, they abandoned the cure idea, and they focused on us, you know, having a, a, a decent life. I, I think when I was growing up, in, you know, in the early 60s, I mean, like five-ish, it, it was, you know, quote unquote, bad to have one blind kid. But when my mom had two, I think, you know, uh, a lot of our, our relatives who, you know, were not as close to me as some, some other relatives, you know, kind of thought, well, what did Mary do to deserve that? You know, there's a, a big Catholic influence in my family. And so there, there was shame and blame from some parts of the family, but then other parts of the family that were closer to me, you know, um, as a kid, were very much not that way. They were kind of, they were very, in our, in our family, Peggy and I were treated like the rest of the kids. We were given chores, which of course we tried to get out of. You know, we were, we had interactions like any other family member. I felt like my parents did not overprotect us. And in fact, in some ways, you know, I think they, you know, they were so afraid of overprotecting us that they, you know, they, they really kind of pushed and pushed us into situations. For example, you know, we started backpacking with a Girl Scout troop when we were about 12, all the way up through high school. And um, it was a non, it was a Girl, Girl Scout troop of non-disabled girls with some amazing leaders, you know, that just taught us how to snowshoe and we went rock climbing. So we, we were lucky to get a lot of experiences that I, really helped shape us. Just being with people that, you know, that allowed me to participate in what they were doing um, as a kid was, was an amazing opportunity. And my mom and dad, but more my mom, because, you know, my dad worked, had so much to do with mine and Peggy's development in terms of, 
you know, insisting that we go to, to uh, mainstream school, making sure we got back and forth. My mom had to learn to drive so she could cart us all over the place. And really just not, you know, she was, she was pretty hard on us in some ways, but in, in a way that was how she showed her love. You know, we didn't, we couldn't get away with much, although we tried, but um, so, so there was the Catholic influence on one hand, but on the other hand, we were very lucky to have, you know, my siblings who treated us like everybody else. I mean, they would give a shit just like they would give anybody shit. And so, you know, I think we, we saw like what, what our lives could be. Um, and we were very lucky that we had the parents that we did. So when it was time for your family to start thinking about you going to kindergarten, did they ever talk to you about what that was like? Yeah, so um, at the time, you know, my mom's English wasn't great. It, it, it is perfectly fine, but it wasn't great. You know, she was still c- coming from a Spanish-speaking environment. And so I say that because, you know, I think there was a lot of things that even that she didn't understand. I think sometimes people are a little impatient with her because her English wasn't great and she had an accent. But, but she did not want us to be separate. So where we lived in Southern California, was about 500 miles away from the School for the Blind, which at the time was in Berkeley. And my mom did not want us to go there. Fortunately, at the time, the California, there was some folks in California who were very interested in seeing if disabled people could be mainstreamed. And Peggy and I were some of the first blind people in Orange County, where we grew up, that were actually mainstreamed. We were not the first, but we were in the cohort of people that went to a public school and we were very well supported at the time. And so, you know, my mom was very happy about that. I, I don't know if it was just timing, but it, it, was, it was timing, but it was also her pressuring the school district to say, I don't want to send my kid away. I want her to stay here in the family, be part of our family, part of our culture, and, you know, grow up with, with her siblings. I think that's really important because, as you've been describing, you have a big family and the family is important and you don't send kids away. And on the other hand, because there were no protections that she had, and as you said, there were issues around language, she obviously was becoming a strong advocate. Would you define your mom as a feisty woman? Yeah, for sure. She still is at 92. The other thing that I think is really important, and of course we didn't know it at the time, but if I had gone to a school for the blind, um, there, there's many, I'm sure there's many good things about it. But one thing that I'm grateful for is that I did not get disconnected from my culture. I think that that happened a lot to people of color, given that the majority of teachers and administrators and um, dorm workers in segregated schools were white, except for probably the janitors. And, you know, very often people would lose their culture. So I'm very grateful for that. I guess the only regret I have is I never learned how to play piano like Jose Feliciano and Stevie Wonder did at their schools for the blind. But, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> when did you get mobility instruction? Oh, wow. When I was growing up, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the whole where I was in Southern California, um, the idea was that you, you wanted to be as, quote, normal as possible. So I did not have mobility instruction, formal mobility instruction, until I was in high school. The wild thing is that we would walk around in the high school with no canes. And, um, and you know, that was okay, according to, you know, the, the people who were 
who were leading you know, the charge around blindness because they wanted us to appear normal. I have to say when I got, when I was able to go to um, junior college and, and when I first started college and, and used a cane, I felt so much freer because I felt like people um, knew I was blind. And, and, and when I didn't have a cane, I they, you know, they thought well, Peggy and I were high or something was wrong. You know, the, you know, they, they attributed certain things to us that weren't true. And I think when we got our canes, we were like, wow, this is freedom. And did you get formal instruction? I mean, at some point in high school or? I did. Yeah, they started in high school. And then I went to the Orientation Center for the Blind um, in 1977. And that's when I um, got the Braille flyer about the sit-in. And I went to the sit-in. Um, I never went inside the building. I want to be very clear about that. Um, I was only outside because I was told that if I if I did go in, I would I would get kicked out of the orientation center. So I was very careful. And that was really when I, you know, that was my first like interaction with a cross disability um, movement. That was it right at the sit in with everybody singing. And um, it was it was wild. I was like, wow, this is I never knew about disability pride before. So, Kathy, um, when did you start learning Braille? So I was, again, bringing people with disabilities to mainstream schools in 1963, 64, 65 was an experiment. And one of the tenets of that experiment was that we should learn Braille at the same rate that our sighted peers learned to read. So I was lucky enough to have the Braille books. I have the books in Braille for me, and I was able to participate in reading circles and read, you know, when they would ask people to read, I was able to read my part. And it not only did it help me be a better Braille reader, but it also taught the kids that, you know, there was another way to read and there was another way to do things. And so, you know, as a participant in those types of age-appropriate activities, I think not only did it help me learn as a kid, but it also helped the other kids see, you know, there's different ways of doing things. There's different ways of reading. There's different ways of getting to a bus, you know, I think it was, it was very beneficial. And of course, they were all very curious about the Braille. And as part of, of an activity in our class, we, you know, they were able to learn the alphabet, the grade one alphabet. So, you know, they were very curious and it was kind of woven in, you know, to the, to the classroom as just part of the daily operation, so to speak. Did Peggy learn Braille also? She did. So what do you think about Braille? Is it important? Oh my God, I would, I'm an avid Braille proponent. I, I don't think I could do the job I have or the past few jobs I've had without being able to read Braille. There are so many things about Braille that I think are critical if you can't read print. First of all, when you have a book, you get to read in your own voice. So when you, and you get to learn how to spell, punctuate. I'm not the best writer in the world, but I have become a better writer because of Braille. I think, you know, taped information is really good, but when you read a book, you, you get, like I said, you get, to your, you get to hear your own voice interpret what the Braille says. So when you have tape, it's great, or books on tape, or, you know, books now online, it's all fantastic, but there's an intermediary interpreting the words. So when, when you're a Braille reader, you have direct connection to the words. And I would say I've seen you, and I don't know if you're still doing this, but you were at one point an avid note taker. Yeah, I am an avid note taker. I, I have a Braille devices that are 
refreshable Braille and they're able to connect to my computer. As a CEO and as a former assistant secretary, I mean, there's just so many things that I, I cannot remember. You know, writing things down has been very important to me in my own way, being able to access them, you know, quickly and I can organize myself. I mean, you can do this now with- Other forms of technology. Yeah, yeah, you can do this. But, but for me, Braille has been a, a blessing, really. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm not a Braille user, but I have friends who are Braille users. And I think, you know, it's really important for families to understand that it's another means of communication but it is much easier for people to learn Braille if their children and they're blind or low vision than it is when they get older. Is that right? Well, it's like learning any language. You know, kids, there were, you know, we were sponges when we were kids. So we were able to learn a lot more quickly and, and Braille is a language. So it's, you know, you're learning a whole language and yes, it is easier to learn languages when you're younger. Yeah. Thank you very much on that, Kathy. And you're also an user and advocate of technology. Um, so going beyond brailing, uh, what is your feeling about where we are today in the world of technology and accessibility? Well, I think we are, you know, we move, definitely move forward. We all have to realize that it's, a, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint. I am very grateful for screen readers. I'm very grateful for you know, gadgets like the iPhone. It's very important to remember that you know, the people with disabilities can either be shut out or called in depending on how technology is designed. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like you know, when, when you're baking a blueberry muffin and you don't wait and add the blueberries till the end of the breaking process, right? You, you weave them, you, you stir them in. And so when you think about accessibility as Apple has, and they have decided as a, as a, a standard operating practice to make every piece of technology that they design and develop accessible. I think companies now are realizing that in order to have more productive workforce, um, the concept of universal design is getting traction. And while I am very grateful for the technology that, I've, that I use, it, the technology that I use is always as a reaction to you know, technology for the non-disabled public. So my goal, my hope is that as companies, as technology companies, all companies that use technology design and develop their technology, they weave accessibility in, like, a blue, like the blueberry muffin analogy, right? So mm -hmm. it's, part of, it's part of the DNA of whatever technology they use. It's, it's, very, it's critical because what happens is it takes assistive technology a while to catch up, right? So if technology is built in rather than baked on, it, we can open the box, set up our, our phones or our computers, have it be accessible for people who have communication disabilities. That's the goal, really. And for me, you know, one of the values I think of doing it as you're discussing is that people who may not consider themselves to have a disability, but could benefit from some of what I think more of us are talking about universal design, that it would begin to open up a new world for people who really need to benefit from some of these technologies. But we will not be going to a disability organization for whatever reason. 
I think there's a lot happening. There's a lot of really good thinking around this, and maybe this is a different show, but I, I think just weaving practices and accessibility practices at all levels, including technology, but being mindful that people don't communicate in the same ways, being mindful about how people prefer to communicate. And I don't even, I'm not even talking about if you're blind or if you have a communication disability, but if you're neurodivergent or if you're, you know, if you're a, a mother with a kid that, you know, you need flexibility or um, there's so many reasons why accessibility benefits more than just those of us who are blind, deaf and wheelchair users. And I, th I think that companies are, are, are understanding that. And I think, you know, the fact that we have a push to get people um, who are neurodivergent in our companies have really expanded our way of thinking about how to get jobs done. And what I'm talking about is like, you know, when you're giving somebody feedback, when do they prefer the feedback? Do they prefer it through text? Do they prefer it on the phone? Do they prefer it through email? Um, you know, do they prefer not to speak in meetings? In which case, how do you provide a way for them to participate? So I think we're moving, honestly, the thinking is moving way beyond the quote accommodations mindset and having it just woven in to the standard operating practice of the business. Now this is happening at the cutting edge of business. This is not happening in your average workforce, but, it, but, the, but the thinking is there. And it makes a lot of sense because everybody needs to be accommodated, not just people with disabilities. And I think it's so important to realize that accommodations for typically non-disabled people, they're accommodations, but they're just considered standard operating practice. I think for people with disabilities, you know, it's the accommodations issue has become a boogeyman. And if we, if we assume that all accommodations are productivity tools, and there's more than one way to do things that might really improve the workforce for everybody. I think we'll be able to hire a lot more people with disabilities and really expand the diversity of, of the workplace. I really think many of the points, but one point in particular is very important because you and I both know that when looking for jobs, if you need an accommodation, if the company hasn't really talked about accommodations as a, a factor that they're not um, afraid of. Many people are really afraid of mentioning any kind of accommodations that they might need before they get a job offer. And so I think in the world that you're discussing in the future, uh, what we'll really be able to see is that those is some of those issues will be taken off the table because it'll exactly. be something that will right be, be there and valued by more people. To me, the analogy is people coming up to me and saying, there isn't an electric door opener on this door. Isn't that bad? It's not even a legal requirement, but people have really learned to value that electric door opener, regardless of their age. Kathy, you've done many things, as you were saying earlier, uh, when you were in the Girl Scout troop and uh, how your parents in some way were preparing you for the bigger world. I'm wondering, as a child or as an adult, are there fears that you've had that you've had to overcome? And how have you done that? Well, there, I'm, we're, I'm a bundle of fears. Yes. But, you know, you have to learn to live with them and acknowledge them. And so this is a really weird thing. And I, I've, I've never, I probably never admitted this in public before, but 
one of my, you know, one of my, really it's not a fear, but it's, it's always been with me as a kid. It's like, well, what do I look like to sighted people? And, 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 and I know people have described me, but it doesn't, you know, I still don't know, like physically what or, you know, sightedly, like, what is my affect? I've always wondered about that. And so as a kid, I was very, you know, I was always wondering if I looked okay, did I match? Did, you know, and my, my family was very, you know, very uh, visually oriented. And of course, Peggy and I caused many arguments when we'd come out of our rooms and say, what color is this? It's grape. No, it's purple. No, it's, you know, so we realized that people see things really differently just by asking that question. In terms of fears, well, I think being accepted, being included, I've always been pretty competitive, but I've always, I've also been called out on, you know, on, on, on things that people didn't like. I come from a family that's super honest and, you know, would say things like, don't do that, or don't look that way. Or um, one of the things I used to do as a, as a young kid is when people were talking to me, instead of looking at them, I would put my ear toward them because that's where I was listening. That's where we were connecting. And the kids at school actually said, don't, don't do that. Look at somebody or if you, you know, put your head, put your, your face toward them. So, you know, a lot of it was like, how do, how do you fit in, in a visual world? That was, I wouldn't say it was a fear, but it was a concern. And I don't know about overcoming, you know, I don't know if we ever do. Certainly, you know, as a, as a blind parent, one of my fears was, you know, doing, doing a, a good job. And there was a while there where I was afraid that Jorge's friends, my son's friends would, would not, their parents would not allow them to come to my house. But that, you know, that, <laughs> I had many sleepovers. And, you know, the thing that was so amazing about that is that the kids were very comfortable with me. The parents took a little more time to get comfortable. And one of the examples is I would have, a kid sleep over on Fridays and, and then that kid's parents would take Jorge and their kid to soccer in Saturday morning. So the first time they stayed over, the, the mother came in and, you know, how did everybody do? Did everybody sleep? Yeah, we're all good. And then she whispered to the, her son, did you have breakfast? And he said, yeah, we had breakfast. And she said, what did you have? And he said, we had, you know, eggs and toast and blah, blah, blah. And then she said, how did she do it? And the kid just busted the parents said, mom, you know, she did it just like you do. She put the eggs in the pan and, you know, and so those are the kind of, I, I did have that as a fear. You know, I wanted other, other parents to know that I would be, you know, was able to, to manage their kids. I mean, of course, when people got to be teenagers, it was a whole different story, but, but that doesn't have to do with the disability. I think, you know, we all want to fit in. We all want to do well. So those were some of my fears. Has it been important for you to have other disabled role models, peers in addressing things like fears? Yes, I could never have gotten to where I am without mentors like you, like, you know, Kitty Cohn. I mean, there's been so many. I don't want to start naming names because I'll forget people. But yeah, I mean, you know, people, people broke ground for me. They saw things in me that I didn't see. And, and they were, again, they were also really, really honest. You know, if I was being a jerk, they told me. And, and, and the thing about that is it, it, it makes you very self-aware, you know, because it, it just really, at least for me, it really increased my self-awareness. And, you know, no matter what my intent was, 
they, I was very often reminded of what my impact might be or was. So, you know, intent versus impact, I think it's a very important thing to know. And, and a lot of, you know, I think it was good for me because I couldn't see visual reactions to what I was doing. Have you had people in your life as you've moved up the food chain into different jobs who you've asked if they would please let you know body language of people around the room? I do it every meeting, every single meeting. And I started doing it when I became the executive director of the World Institute on Disability. But working in a non-disabled environment like, you know, when I worked for Wells Fargo, it was very important because this is really interesting. I just had this conversation the other day. So a lot of times I think people misinterpret my facial expressions because I have never really been able to emulate um, Mm -hmm. like the appropriate smile for a meeting or I know I, ha- I do a lot of head nodding I, because I'm a, I, I think I'm a good listener. I try to be. But I asked at every meeting that I led at Wells, I asked somebody to give me um, feedback. And now in the Zoom world, I have my plants in meetings who, who give me feedback through text about, you know, how people are reacting. And, you know, if I need to do something, like if I, you know, like somebody wrote the other day, smile. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, (laughs) was I not smiling? Okay, I'll smile. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think this is very important as a leader. You you have to be in touch and you got to do it the best way we can. I have to tell you throughout the program so far, I've been pretty much smiling ear to ear and I neglected. I'm wearing wearing pink (laughs) pink lipstick. Oh, I forgot um, to put mine on. Oh, yeah, mm, it's okay. Um, So, Kathy, you're now in your 60s. Did you ever think that you would have had the degree of influence and the uh, types of jobs that you continue to have? Well, I'll say no on the influence. And what I knew about myself as a kid was I was a really curious kid and I was kind of a pain in the ass because I was curious. I mean, I was, I mean, both are true. Um, Cause I would, you know, I would, I just inhale books. I, you know, like to explore things which I probably shouldn't have explored. I would pummel my mother with questions about things, you know, to, and I have to say she was pretty patient but it, it would get exasperated. So I knew that I would do different things in my life just cause I had, I was just a curious person and I still am. So I didn't ever think I would have as much influence. I, as a young person in my 20s, when I was just really learning, I mean, I learn every day, but when I was, you know, trying different things on, I knew that I wanted to emulate certain things about certain mentors. There was other things about my mentors I did not want to emulate. And, you know, that's, that's what leadership is. You, you figure out what works, you figure out Again, what type of impact you want to have? I have been very passionate about economic justice because in my formative years, I thought my mother, I saw her be discriminated against many times around, you know, getting a credit card, setting up a bank account. And I saw that, um, you know, my parents were, you know, they were working class, um, but there was a lot of mouths to feed. And, you know, I just saw that she had up, up to when I was about 12, because then she, she got a job with my encouragement. So I was like, mom, you got to get a job, man. This lack of choice sucks, even though I didn't say it like that. 
but I really felt it in my bones, the fact that she had so little choice and it had to do with our economic circumstances and the fact that she was a woman. So that influenced me profoundly. And I just thought, you know what, I'm, you know, I don't care if I'm rich, but I want to be able to have choices and I want to be able to live in a place where I can get around, where I don't have to depend, where I can depend on as few people as possible to go to the store, the bank, the you know, laundry, the cleaners. And so those are the types of choices that I knew I wanted to have as an adult. I know that, you know, in 2001, at the World Institute on Disability, we started Proyecto Vision, um, which was the first technical assistance center for Latinos with disabilities that was sponsored by the Department of Education. That, you know, that really was a reflection of my experience as a kid, you know, just thinking all these people, you know, I'd like to connect them with the world of work. I'd like to connect them with their brothers and sisters in um, small businesses. So we connected with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So all that came out of my experiences as a kid. So for a minute, Kathy, did you go on to higher education? And what was that transition like from high school to higher ed? I did go on to higher education. However, there was a few bumps in the road and I can't say why. I mean, I could say, I guess I was discriminated against, but you know, I really don't know and I'm not gonna go all negative, but, but it was an interesting story or a situation. So I graduated from high school, went to the department of rehab, said, hey, you know, here I am, I wanna, you know, I wanna, I wanna work because that was my deal. They said, okay, you can be a PBX telephone operator you can be a rehab counselor or I forgot what the other choice. It was like something for blind people. Or of course I could make brooms, right? I could work in a sheltered workshop. I said, nope, sorry, none of that. He said, and then like about three weeks later, he said, I have the best job for you. This is fantastic. And he really thought it was a step in the right direction because it was in a non-disabled environment. I got a job when I was 18 years old at Quickset Lock Factory where I ran a punch press. It was a very dangerous, very dirty job. In fact, I don't know if, honestly, it'd be interesting to see if, if they would hire a person with a disability now. The, the conditions were much worse, you know, much different then because you didn't have your iPhone. You couldn't, you know, put music in your ears. So you were listening to these very loud machines. These sparks of metal would fly and like hit your face or hit your chest or you have to wear long sleeves. And I decided, you know, after nine months, now this isn't for me. I went back to the rehab counselor. I said, hey, I'd love to go to college. He said, sorry, your case is closed. So I thought, oh, God. So after I quit Quickset, I decided to go back to school. And it took me 13 years to graduate from college because I just assumed that when they said my case was closed, that I couldn't ever contact rehab again to open it. So I went through college, paid for it myself. And then at the very end, like the last some two semesters, somebody said, no, re, you know, it's a lot different now. There's new counselors. I moved up to the Bay Area, a lot more liberal thinking, I should say progressive thinking. And so I did get, you know, they ultimately did pay for my last year at San Francisco State. But yes, I did graduate. It did take me 13 years. I was raising a kid in the meantime and traveling and I lived in Mexico. So none of the time was wasted, but I it did, you know, I was not on the four-year plan. Let me just say that. So Kitty. Um, I met Kitty, uh, well, first we met in 77. We, we have proof now that we actually met then. But um, I, you know, I was still 18. Now, I, I, re, I was reintroduced to Kitty when I was 20. 
at the organization of the rights of people with disabilities. You know, we, we became lovers and then we moved to Mexico, had a kid and, you know, ended up not being lovers, but, you know, remaining best friends until she died. And parents. And pa oh yeah, we were absolutely very good co-parents. She was the nice one, I was the mean one. Oh, you were the mean one. Oh, seriously? Well, I mean, she was mean in her own way, but I was the strict one and, you know, she couldn't like physically chase after Jorge. So I kind of got, got that role by default. <laughs> I mean, it, it worked out because we could help each other in, you know, she could help me in, in ways that I, and I could help her in things that she couldn't do. So I could help her physically and she could help me, you know, guide me. We could, you know, she could read. So we were a good fit in that way. Our disabilities complemented each mm -hmm. other. And so in Mexico, you know, people really never assumed we were gay unless they, you know, we told them unless they, they knew us. They just assumed, A, that we were kind of put together by God um, to, to help each other. You know, we kind of fit together. So were you political before you met Kitty? Oh, yeah. That was one of the things that attracted her, I think, to me. Yeah, I had worked in the youth movement for the farm workers when I was still in Southern California. What'd you say are some of your most meaningful experiences in the world of work? Let me also preface this by saying, Kathy has worked both in the nonprofit sector at the level in the federal government as assistant secretary, and then moved over to Wells Fargo as a senior vice president, and now is the president and CEO of uh, disability rights advocates. So you've really had a great array of jobs where you start as an individual working on projects and then moved up the, the chain into management. Okay, so I have a couple things to say. So one of the things about people in, in my generation, at least, is that we were trained as advocates. We were not trained as managers. We became, we became managers, but I had to take extra courses and extra training and and I also had some really good mentors who were good managers, make a really fair, good manager. And managing isn't easy because you're not always going to say yes to somebody. Everybody isn't happy all of the time. So for me, there's a, a few experiences that have meant the world. And one of them is, you know, being able to leave a place better than I found it. So when I left the Department of Labor, I felt like it was in good hands. I felt like I had done what I could do there. You know, we got Section 503 strengthened and the president established it as an executive order. Um, I felt like I had, you know, developed some, some projects that made a difference. Add Us In was a, a project where we, it kind of was a, a takeoff on the Proyecto Vision work where we worked with minority chambers of commerce to connect the disability community to that community where there's, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs. So, you know, leaving, I think leaving places better than I found them, really kind of paying it forward, helping to mentor folks as much as I can. At, at Wells Fargo, we had a lot of good, a lot of wins. Again, you know, it, it's not a sprint. Uh, things won't happen overnight, but I felt like we were able to turn the ship around to get to a place of, well, there's a lot of really good changes. I mean, first of all, you know, we improved our physical, digital, and cultural accessibility. One thing I'm really proud of is with, in regard, with regard to 503, you know, where people have to keep, where the companies have to keep track of their, how many people who identify as having a disability. So 503 covers 
companies that have contracts from the federal government. Yeah, yeah, contracts over $50,000. So, well, Wells Fargo was a big federal contractor. So the, the thing I'm the proudest of is, yes, we did increase our numbers. We went from 0.08% to 6.5%. It took six years. But the, the most important thing about that was how we changed the culture so that people felt safe enough to identify. And the majority of people who are identified are people with non-evident disabilities. So I'm very proud to go back to your question of you know, the work that we did in the culture, you know, encouraging people to, to have conversations. We had fireside chats, panels, one-on-ones, as many conversations as we could have. We had you there, Judy, as a, a guest speaker, which had thousands of employees, by the way, you know, attending, just getting disability off the special shelf, I call it, and into the, the mainstream conversation and weaving the whole, the, the idea of disability into the diversity agenda um, and have it not be special or be separate. And, and then uh, on the foundation side, we really you know, changed the approach to, our, to the philanthropy and not have it be a charity issue. But one of the, the pillars in our philanthropic strategy was to fund organizations um, that had people with disabilities in their leadership. That was something that was a must. So we changed the focus of, of how we funded disability organizations. It, was, it became much less about charity and much more about independent living and uh, self-determination. The job that you're in right now is the president and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates. We're coming to a close of the program, but would you like to give us like your thought of why you took this job and how you hope to make a difference here? So Disability Rights Advocates is a nonprofit high impact litigation organization. It's been around since 1993. It's primarily been led by its founders. And there was a period uh, before I came where there was kind of some experiments with multiple directors. My goal for DRA is, I have a few things. One, I I want to continue the high impact litigation, which is the heartbeat of the work and and the purpose of the organization. I think to order, in order to improve the cases that we take or be more strategic and more proactive about the types of cases we take, we have to do two things. One, we have to figure out how to pay people with disabilities for their expertise that provide us with information that you need before a case, you know, like statistics about discrimination, and then after a case about how we uh, remedy, like for example, how, how we, I want to include people with disability in the monitoring so that, you know, like, for example, if we win a case in New York, uh, people with disabilities in New York should be involved in, in how the injunctive relief gets done. Um, so really kind of being more proactive about working with the disability community and not just, you know, saying, hey, you know, have you been discriminated against? Okay, then, you know, tell us what happened, but really kind of being much more inner, you know, just having more of a partnership. The other thing is we have to start building bridges between disability legal work and the social justice community that does legal work. We're currently co-counseling a case with a a wonderful attorney named Lee Merritt, who um, is actually is running for the state uh, attorney general position in Texas, African-American man 
there's so many bridges that we can build between social justice legal work and disability rights legal work, given that there's a higher incidence of people with disabilities in BIPOC communities. So those are two goals in addition to keeping up the, with the work of our high impact litigation. We don't charge our clients and we, we, we typically do not seek damages. So I have one last question. Yep. And that is, what is the guidance that you would like to give to our listeners? I mean, I guess my first thing would be stay curious, be a lifelong learner. In terms of disability, remember, bake it in, don't bolt it on. Um, it's not an afterthought. And, you know, I would say, think about how you can impact, you know, people in your life positively. You know, think about people, uh, disability is a, is a is, you know, you've heard this before, it's oh, the, one of the few minorities you can join. You know, there's an amazing world out there of people with disabilities. We have an incredible culture. I think, you know, in the world of work, companies are realizing that we have a lot to add. We are very strategic. We're amazing employees because we're, we're amazing problem solvers. And, and I think that's really true. I'm not, I mean, I think we are. We have to be because the world wasn't designed for us. So stay curious, pay it forward, and believe in yourself. Yeah. Si se puede. Yes, si se puede. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us today. Thanks, Judy. You've been tuning in to The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guest was Kathy Martinez. Be sure to follow Disability Rights Advocates on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at DRA Legal. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Juarez. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective.